Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a fuzzy navel. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a grape sake bomb, and on this week's episode, we will be looking at the Tokyo subway sarin attack. This attack, along with other similar terrorist attacks, were organized by Am Shirikyo, who wanted to start World War III and start the apocalypse that would end the world. Before we get into the details of the attacks, let's look at the group responsible for it. Am Shirikyo was founded in 1984 by pharmacist Shizuo Matsumoto. The group's doctrine revolves around a mixture of Tibetan Buddhism and Christianity and Hindu beliefs. They believe that the Armageddon is unavoidable and will be a war between the United States and Japan. Non-members are doomed to internal hell and can only be saved if the cult kills them. And the surviving members of the cult will rebuild the world after the apocalypse. That world would be known as the Kingdom of Shahala. In 1987, Matsumoto changed his name to Shuko Ashihara, and his mental health declined around this time. He expressed health anxiety and expressed suicidal views. Two years later, in 1989, the group gained official recognition as a religious group from the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, which granted them tax breaks and other religious benefits such as the removal of governmental oversight. This resulted in a massive growth for the religion, with their net worth rising to over 100 billion yen, which is approximately $1.1 billion. Their membership rose as well, with around 20,000 members by 1992. Unfortunately, this increase in profile and legitimacy also led to an increase in violent behaviors from its members, including the murder of a lawyer and his family, because the lawyer was working on a class action suit against the group. Ashihara had expressed delusions of grandeur and claimed that the god Shiva had spoken to him and given him the blueprint to a utopian society. In 1990, he announced that 25 candidates would run for office under the banner of the Truth Party. When the party only received 1,783 votes, Ashihara blamed it on external conspiracies created by quote-unquote Freemason and Jews. And this resulted in Ashihara to produce botulism and fashion in order to overthrow the Japanese government. They also tried to procure anthrax. These attempts failed and Ashihara began to make public appearances to recruit new members. This was until Ashihara's mental health declined further and he began to complain of hallucinations and paranoia. He claimed society was preventing him from fulfilling his destiny as Christ. In 1992, he published Declaring Myself the Christ, where he outlined his doomsday prophecy and described a final conflict culminating in a nuclear Armageddon. 
He claimed to be able to see dark conspiracies everywhere created by Jews, Freemasons, the Dutch, the British royal family, and rival Japanese religions. The failure of biological weapons convinced Asahara to focus on chemical weapons. This initiative was headed by Masami Tishiya, who in 1992 established a laboratory focused on synthesizing sarin. The first attacks occurred in late 1993 and early 1994, which failed. On June 27, 1994, sarin was used in the Matsumoto sarin attacks. Eight people were killed and over 500 people were harmed with the sarin being released in a residential area in the Nagano prefecture. The stated motive was the assassination of judges who were presiding over criminal charges involving the group and to test the effectiveness of sarin. The group also used the nerve agent VX to assassinate targets in 1994 and 1995. This brings us to the events of Monday, March 20th, 1995. Five members of Am Shinrikyo directly carried out an attack on the Tokyo subway, which is one of the busiest commuter transport systems at the peak of the morning rush. They placed liquid sarin in plastic bags and then wrapped them in newspaper. Each member carried two packets. They carried their packets of sarin and umbrellas, which had been sharpened aboard their appointed train. They punctured the bags and then exited the station to meet their accomplice who was in a waiting car. The punctured packets then leaked into the car and station. This sarin affected the passenger and subway workers. The attack affected the Chiyoda Line, Marinucci Line, and Hibiya Line. In total, 14 people were killed, 50 were severely injured with some later dying, and caused vision issues for nearly 1,000 others. These attacks burdened the area's hospitals, with 278 hospitals seeing over 5,510 patients, with most being deemed as quote-unquote, worried well, but not ill. It took two hours for the hospitals to become aware that sarin was involved, and then they started to administer two PAM and atropine. Healthcare workers, as well as others who helped victims, experienced secondhand exposure to the sarin. The Japanese parliament rejected a request from government officials to outlaw the group after the attack, but the group did lose its status as a religious organization and had most of its assets seized. On February 27, 2004, Asahara was sentenced to death. Japan's Supreme Court upheld this sentence on September 15, 2006. On July 6, 2018, Asahara and six others connected to the attacks were executed by hanging. As is customary in Japan, the execution dates were not announced in advance. In total, 189 members were indicted with 13 being sentenced to death. Five were sentenced to life imprisonment. 80 were given prison sentences of various lengths, 87 were given suspended sentences, two were fined, and one was found not guilty. The group still exists under the Aleph following the teaching of Asahara with an estimated membership of 2,100 members. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the 1995 Tokyo Subway Sarin attack? I had never heard of this before, so thank you for picking it because I think it's a really interesting story. First off, I think it's wild how many people that this group had at one point, like 20,000 people. And I'm curious, 
Asahara's mental health decline. Some people left or not. And status with the government being exempt is really strange to me too. I mean, if they weren't carrying out attacks, if they got it before they were carrying out these kind of attacks, I can understand it. But they seemed like a threat for a long time. I mean, killing a lawyer and his family and assassinating other people and attempting to, that's obviously like dangerous and like borderline terrorist behavior. I wanted to say too, I think it's really interesting that the train's efficiency was really used against it because it was so routine and so on time. It made the train system and its passengers very vulnerable to these attackers. And it's really amazing that more people weren't killed or hurt. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about chemical warfare, but biological and chemical warfare is absolutely terrifying to me. And I'm glad that more, I know tons of people were exposed to this, but like I said, the situation could have been so much worse than it was. And I've heard that really none of the people involved showed remorse, but one person. So I think that goes to show what we've said about cults so many times, this brainwashing. And it's really, it's horrible to see. But again, I'm just so glad more people weren't affected. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. I think this is one of those cases where you look to see if anything could have been done to prevent it, but it just happened that all the wrong things happened at the right time. You had someone who was very charismatic and was able to utilize the protections that he got from the law and from government in order to recruit people and then warp those individuals into people that were willing to carry out attacks. I also think that it's interesting that at no point when he was trying the different weapons was he stopped. Like, you would think that if someone is trying to, to collect anthrax, he tried to collect other toxins. Why wouldn't the government step in then? Like, people don't just collect it. He had no legitimate reason to have it. Why wouldn't you make sure that he wasn't trying to go further? And then he switched to Saren, and he was able to recruit a scientist, Masami. And he synthesized it, and he was able to repeatedly use Saren. And this group was known to be dangerous. And unfortunately, even after this attack and after the leader and a lot of the high-ranking members were put to death, this group and its members are still a menace to society. In just 2019, there was a car attack by a sympathizer of the group, and he ended up running over nine people with his car. So... I think that if they had stepped in earlier, just put very strict limitations on the group, very strict limitations on them being able to spread their ideology, a lot of this stuff wouldn't happen. I also want to go back to his mental health and the decline. I agree with you. Like, I wonder what was the effect that that decline had on the group? 
embolden people to step up and try to position themselves to be the next leader? Or did it cause people to realize that this whole thing was a farce led by a madman and maybe we should get out of Dodge? It's one of those things that we likely won't get the answer to, but it is an interesting question. I think that this deserves some, and maybe there is one out there. I think this deserves some kind of documentary or docu-series special, just like we have with so many other cults. Like I said, I had never heard of this before. And not to say that, you know, this isn't a widely talked about event and group of people, but I would really like to learn more about them, especially if they are still operating. And like we said, this is terrorism, really. Releasing gas onto a train, that's terrorism trying to overthrow the government, that's terrorism. Exactly. And I think it's one of those things where you don't see this a lot in Japan. Japan is definitely one of the safest countries to live in and to work in. So when you have an attack like this, a lot of the times it's quickly dealt with and then it's not mentioned again because they're like, oh, well, we don't need to harp on this. This is not ever going to happen again. But the thing about terrorist groups, they don't just go away. Even if you're able to severely damage their membership numbers and take out their leaderships, you still have their underlings who believe in ideology and are willing to go to extreme lengths to realize that ideology, especially one they believe in, where they literally think that the only way to save people is to kill them. Like, that's one of their core beliefs. And they also believe that they are going to be in a war with one of the most powerful nations in the world, the United States. So that also creates a hardening effect on them. And honestly, it probably creates a scenario where Like many other terrorists, they're not afraid of sacrificing their lives and becoming martyrs to their cause. The main weapon of attack was sarin. Sarin has been used as a chemical weapon since the mid-1950s, though it was discovered in mid-1939 by the German Army Weapons Office. Its mass production was ordered through the construction of facilities, but was not completed by the end of World War II. It is estimated that Nazi Germany produced from 500 kilograms to 10 tons of sarin. NATO and the USSR adopted sarin as a standard chemical weapon. In March of 1988, Saddam Hussein used sarin to attack a Kurdish city, killing an estimated 5,000 people who were mostly civilians. In 1993, the United Nations Chemical Weapons Convention was signed by 162 member countries, banning the production and stockpiling of many chemical weapons, including sarin. It went into effect on April 29, 1997, and called for the complete destruction of all specified stockpiles of chemical weapons by April 2007. When the convention entered force, the parties declared worldwide 
stockpiles of 15,047 tons of salmon. As of November 28, 2019, 96% of the stockpile has been destroyed. Despite this, there has been recent use of sarin, and this was reported in the Syrian Civil War with sarin attacks in both 2013 and 2017. Sarin is just one of the many chemical weapons that have been used in war. Chemical warfare is defined as the use of toxic properties of chemical substances as weapons. Along with nuclear, radiological, and biological weapons, they are considered weapons of mass destruction. The use of these weapons are prohibited by customary international humanitarian law. Over 70 different types of chemical weapons have been stockpiled since the 19th century. This was started with the development of chlorine gas, which was developed to stop the stall of trench warfare. During World War II, the Nazis used poison gas against the civilian population, which resulted in an estimated 3 million deaths. This remains the deadliest use of poison gas in history. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the use of sarin and other chemical warfare? If you are at war, I understand why you would want to use it because of the devastating effects but i mean that's the exact reason i would say it's uncalled for and really unnecessary and inhumane frankly i guess you could say it gives an unfair advantage to a country in a way but this chemical warfare is really doing like more damage i think than a gun would we're seeing effects on the people involved for generations being I guess I have to ask you, like, you know how, what was it, Agent Orange? That's what they used in, like, the Vietnam War, right? And that's what gave people all those birth defects. But we've seen in the Vietnam War with using Agent Orange how people for generations after that were affected have had birth defects and the effects on the environment. That is a long-lasting thing. And, of course, warfare in general is long-lasting with people's memory and how it can affect a country going forward. But this chemical warfare is affecting things and devastating people on a different level. So I would say I'm firmly against all of it. What about you? I definitely agree with you. I think that anytime you have a weapon that doesn't just affect the other combatants, but also has the potential to devastate the civilian communities, it's a weapon that shouldn't be used. I think that it also creates a unfair advantage in war when it comes to nations that have more resources than others. For example, if you look at what Saddam Hussein did, he was able to use his power and his leverage to murder 5,000 mostly civilian Kurdish people simply because he used chemical warfare. Whereas if he went with conventional warfare, which are guns, things of that nature, he would not have been able to levy such devastation. I think you also have a situation where it's harder to have the sides come to the table when chemical warfare and other weapons of mass destruction has been used because 
people want retaliation. People want to feel like they have gotten even with the other person. And if you have a situation where countries are just trading chemical warfare or other weapons of mass destruction, you're going to end up with whole countries being leveled, entire population and future generations that have a multitude of birth defects and other negative consequences of these chemicals. And though some are well known, we also know that there are chemicals being created and that information is not being released to the public. In this case, a lot of the times when these attacks happen, it's the local hospitals that have to deal with the patients. And if they don't know what they're supposed to be treating, you have people needlessly dying from these attacks. So I definitely think it's a good thing that it's outlawed. And I do think that we need to do a better job of making sure that people are following um, that custom and that convention. And we definitely need to get the countries that haven't signed on to it to sign on to it. How we would exactly do that, I'm not sure. But there has to be some type of incentive that's given to these countries just to make sure that they're not able to levy the devastation that comes with using chemical weapons in warfare, especially when the other side has already decommissioned a lot of their weapons. Jenny, do you think there will be a time when chemical warfare is no longer a threat? Probably not, unfortunately. Like you were kind of mentioning, there are so many countries that just don't want to play by the rules and they just want to be the most powerful and eradicate their enemies at any cost. We've seen several countries do that and not have repercussions. So what is really to stop them from keeping on doing that? War crimes are always going to be happening and I would like to see a stop, but I'm not really like confident that that's going to happen. What about you? I agree. Unfortunately, evil does exist. And you do have people that are in positions of power that do not care about the devastation that is caused by chemical warfare and other weapons of mass destruction. So I personally don't see it going away. I think that what needs to be the focus of nations that are either under threat from these type of attacks or their allies are under threat from those type of attacks, they should be really working on cures and other things that would alleviate the devastation from this type of warfare. So the last thing we're going to look at is the concept of a utopian society. Asha Harbour was said to have a dream of building a utopian society, and a utopia typically describes an imaginary community or society that possesses highly desirable or nearly perfect qualities for its members. In common speak, the word or its adjective form may be used synonymously with 
impossible, far-fetched, or deluded. Despite it being in common wordplay for something imaginary, utopianism inspired and was inspired by some reality-based fields and concepts such as architecture, file sharing, social networks, universal basic income, communes, open borders, and even pirate bases. In the 21st century, discussions around utopia from some authors include post-scarcity economics, late capitalism, and universal basic income. For example, the quote-unquote human capitalism utopia envisioned in Utopia for Realists, which was published in 2016, includes a universal basic income and a 15-hour work week along with open borders. And Utopian Vision has inspired intentional communities. An intentional community is a voluntary residential community which is designed to have a high degree of social cohesion and teamwork from the start. The members of an intentional community typically hold a common social, political, religious, or spiritual vision and typically share responsibilities and property. The most common form of governance in intentional communities is democratic, about 64%, with decisions made by some form of consensus decision-making or voting. A hierarchical or authoritarian structure governs 9% of communities, 11% are a combination of democratic and hierarchical structure, and 16% do not specify. Dr. Bill Metcalf defined communes as having the following core principles, the importance of the group as opposed to the nuclear family unit, a quote-unquote common purse, a collective household, and group decision-making in general and intimate affairs. Commune members have emotional bonds to the whole group rather than any subgroup, and the commune is experienced with emotions which go beyond just social collectivity. Jenny, if you could build a utopian society, what would it look like? I love this question, and it's so different than what we typically talk about on here. But I would envision it as peace, acceptance, kind of like that. It's the general, you know, stereotype of like world peace and world hunger. But that would make such a difference in the world. Peace, acceptance, understanding. I think if we put a focus on education, especially educating yourself on like where others come from, I think that would make a world of difference. Kind of letting people do their own thing to an extent too, and just like minding your own business. Coming together to work on issues like healthcare, climate change, no poverty or hunger, kind of like what that Utopia for Realists was saying too. I like the universal basic income and who wouldn't love a 15 hour work week? That would be so nice. I think all of this really would just bring people together into the future too. You know, if we could put so much aside, so many stressful elements of society, so many things that cause tension to and stop us from I think moving forward as a society, we would be able to do so many things to advance ourselves. Uh, What would yours look like? So I think mine would look like close to John Lennon's Imagine, where really all of the things that divide us and all of the things that people use to otherize people wouldn't be a factor anymore. 
I definitely agree that education is a important facet of any utopian society because you want to make sure that people have the capacity to not just know about other cultures, but really understand and respect them. I think that in my utopia, one of the things that is going to have high importance is loving yourself and being able to be comfortable in the skin that you're in and making sure that as a society, we are uplifting people and not creating spaces where people feel like they need to hide who they really are or in any way, shape or form, fake their beliefs, whether that be who they love, who they pray to, anything like that. I just want people to feel like their own personal experiences are being honored and respected. I love that. I think that's perfect and exactly what a utopia should be. Absolutely. And I think like when people think of utopia, sometimes they think of like the Jetsons in a way. That came to my mind. (laughs) And honestly, I do think that that could be a part of it because like when you think of utopia and you think of like what would be the most desirable qualities in a society, definitely people like not worrying about everyday needs and not like having stressful lives definitely comes with that right and a lot of the things that like these futuristic shows like the Justin has is just the ease of people to do whatever they want like oh I want to go to the store okay I can just fly there or you know something else like that yeah and I think in a way too, getting back to like I don't want to say spirituality basics, but like human connect, the basicness of human connectedness really is so important. And we, I feel like we don't have that, but we don't have that as much as I think we should, or definitely not, you know, what people had like thousands, hundreds of years ago. But I think getting back to that in a way brings you into the future. Like you don't need technology, but to advance, you have to, like I was saying, like you have to come together and good things will happen. Ideally. I definitely agree with you. I think that one thing that sort of like our modern understanding of communications is we need to get things done fast and concise and just move on to the next thing. There's not a lot of time built in for really getting to know other people. It's like, okay, what can I get out of this interaction right now so that I can move on to the next one? And you just kind of repeat that cycle over and over again. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the 1995 Tokyo subway sarin attack. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with an episode focused on Lizzie Borden. As always, stay safe.